Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to season four, episode one of A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod, and you can find all this information on our webpage, www. Is that too many W's? No, that's three. www.lggpodcast.com. Uh, are... W's anyway. Anymore. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think Scott Adams pointed out like WWW is an acronym that's literally three times as many syllables as the thing it stands for. <laughs> it's also the thing that, I mean, if, nowadays you don't type it in anymore unless you're going to type in. Oh, I couldn't tweet it last time. You know, I only say it because I've got, I got it. I'm going to delete it right now. I've got it written down on my reading <laughs> paragraph here. Whoops. I deleted all of it. I'm going to delete this WWW part so I stop saying it. Who uses it? <laughs> okay. So season four, uh, we uh, are going, uh, so uh, happy. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year to you, Kirk. Happy New Year. Yeah. Uh, 2021 started with a bang, didn't it? Yeah, um. I was uh, almost <laughs> literally. <laughs> you notice nobody ever besieges the IP offices. <laughs> yeah. Well, I commented about the fact that I actually thought it was very interesting that we didn't receive any kind of notification from them. Uh, just yeah, I kind of kept waiting for that. I guess but the patent office isn't really down in the capital area. Yeah, it's in Alexandria, Virginia, you know, yeah. so it's not really in a, in, you know, nearby or anything like that. But I do think it was interesting that they didn't say anything about, you know, like continuing to function or anything along those lines. But I joked about it. I said it's what my, my hope with it is, is that we, we have a, a, a sort of, you know, month becoming a year thing. So, you know, 2020 came in like a lamb and definitely went out like a lion. Mm-hmm. But then you like 2021 here is coming in like a lion and will therefore go out like a lamb. <laughs> So if anybody's listening to this content later and wondering what we're talking about, uh, today is January 11th, 2021. And about five days ago, we had the Electoral College certification for uh, for Joe Biden's uh, electoral victory. And uh, that's probably all you need to know. There was a, a big mob at the uh, uh, at the U.S. Capitol building, uh, a lot of uh, chaos and mayhem. So uh, if you're coming back to this uh, in the future, that's uh, that's what we're talking about. But things seem to have calmed down, and uh, no, nobody nobody went to the patent office. I don't think most people could find the copyright office. Even <laughs> it's in the library. I don't know of where Congress, it is. I believe. It's in the library. Yeah, I'm gonna say, well, the Library of Congress. But that that's that's actually not too far from the Capitol. I haven't been to D.C. in a while to like, you know. You know, be a tourist or anything, but as, as I recall, the Library of Congress is not that far from the Capitol area. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to remember where it is. I want to say, for some reason, I want to say it's near actually the Lincoln Theater, but I may be wrong about that. I thought it was kind of yeah. by the Supreme Court, but again, I'm going from the one time I, w- I walked around that area in 1993, so it's yeah. been a while. <laughs> and, and we're probably completely off base, yeah. and it's actually, you know, in, you know, Colorado or something. Yeah, our, our DC <laughs> listeners are like, you guys are idiots. You know, <laughs> deal what you're t- well, we go to DC every year. We just never go into the Capitol area. We're always out in the suburbs. <laughs> yeah, we always have the Patent Office. I mean, that's the thing. And now we're out in the um, sort of the, the hotel area. National Harbor. Yeah. The National Gaylord Harbor. Hotel down by the, yeah, that area. So <laughs> we didn't go this year. Maybe, maybe the, or last year we didn't get to go because of coronavirus. Maybe we'll be there this fall. So anyway, so today we're going to do a couple of things. Um, a, a lot has actually happened in terms of substantive legislation. Uh, and uh, there's been a number of attempts at reforming or modernizing some of our IP laws that have been really going on for three or four years now and keep getting stalled out in Congress. These laws keep getting through committee. uh, And one point getting to the floor, I think the Senate maybe approved the, the case act. And then it gets held up uh, in in you know one of the two chambers, and the, the you know the people who hold them up, you know, you might be sitting here thinking, well, how can one rep hold up 
you know, the legislation. But but the answer is they, there's there's things going on behind the scenes. And Kirk and I learned a lot about this a couple of years ago uh, in D.C. Actually, the, how how these laws get passed. And I'm you know I'm sure those of you who don't follow these things that closely recognize that there, you know, some legislation is contentious and closely followed by the media, exhaustively debated by Congress, things like uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act and that sort of thing, uh, the, uh, the Trump tax cuts. Uh, but IP laws generally don't, don't divide very well along party lines. You see a lot of IP laws that receive 80, 90, 100% support from Congress. It's just not a big rallying cry subject matter for scoring political points or talking points for election campaigns. People don't understand it. And so typically these rules are sort of, and, and Congress doesn't really understand it either, to be honest. So a, a lot of times, you know, you have somebody in Congress who spearheads the effort from a leadership perspective, but mostly just throws the bill out to the industry and says, what needs to change? Give me your thoughts. And that's 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 pretty much what's what's going on with these, wouldn't you? agree yeah i think part of it is also just that there's no political capital around any of these things um you know the the last time we really had any kind of serious debate i think in the media around any kind of ip law was the america invents act um and you know from as a patent attorney looking at it one who was sort of deeply involved in the behind the scenes portion of that one um what you saw, you know, 90% of what you saw in the media was wrong. Yep. Um, you know, what politicians were talking is. about with, with it was wrong. You know, I mean, there was all sorts of discussion of just, you know, what it is. But again, I think it's just you have relatively low capital. I actually want to quote, I just think this is the greatest quote talking about the the fact that these things came through. Uh, this is a quote from, it's Christopher um, Bucafresco. I may have pronounced his name wrong. A law professor at Cardozo School of Law. Uh, he was quoted in an article here from Law 360, and I love his quote about this, which was once again, and this is the quote, quote, once again, when Congress decides to do something fairly dramatic with respect to copyright policy, it does so without discussion or debate in a giant spending bill that members of Congress had basically no time to read or consider or discuss, end quote. <laughs> I, I kind of love that, that quote because it's, it, I think it's it's accurate of what you encounter a lot of times in conjunction with these these big IP provisions is there things that may get discussed a lot in committees or things that may get, you know, bounced around in the houses, but when they get passed, they tend to get passed as part of something else. Well, that's what happened here for sure. I mean, the the, the case act has been introduced since 2017. I mean, it's been, it's come up over and over and over. Uh, And, and this year was the year we kind of thought it would finally pass and uh, I, I forget exactly who held it up. Um, there, there are behind the scenes reasons for that. that have nothing to do with the actual re- or with the reasons given to the media and press releases. <laughs> it's basically because you've got key stakeholders in the copyright industry um, who are holding out and, and have concerns. Uh, but, you know, what, one of the one of the easy ways to get generally non-controversial legislation passed is to dump it into a defense spending authorization bill <laughs> or, or other must pass legislation like this. And really, we saw we saw President Trump trying and do that with repealing Section 230 of the uh, uh, Communications Decency Act, which we'll, we'll talk about that someday, too, because that's a very important piece of legislation that, that you know, I, I don't know what you think, Kirk. I, I have concerns about Section 230. I don't even think Trump's completely wrong about that, but I don't think you can just repeal it. It's got to be sort of replaced with something else. I think there's there, there's a lot of problems in the fact that a lot of copyright law, and we've talked about this in the program before, a lot of copyright tends to react to current technology. Yeah, And definitely. so by the time it's passed, it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, well, because it's about copying, right? So it, it's yeah. going to respond to technologies that enable new kinds of copying. We'll get into that when we talk about these uh, these legislative changes. Yeah, and I mean, you, you need to go no further than digital audio tape um, and the associated legislation. Dead on arrival. Audio tape. <laughs> yeah, um, to discuss how the fact that basically what, you know, you, you have this kind of legislation getting passed, these things kind of happening that 
don't really have, you know, literally by the time they, they get the legislation passed, the technology doesn't exist anymore. And you have a huge piece of legislation, which is pointless because it has nothing yep. to do with this. Um, Let's so go through anyway. three, three main things in this act. Let's go through them. One of them is the Trademark Modernization Act of 2020, uh, which is probably the, the less heralded, less discussed of these two, um, because um, it's, it's sort of the esoteric uh, procedural changes, but they're important procedural changes, especially given the way that trademark prosecution has evolved over the last, I'd say, 18 months, 24 months. And what's interesting is that the, the reason the trademark system has changed so much over the last couple of years is because Amazon has changed over the last yes. couple of years. Uh, if those of you who don't know, Amazon has a brand registry. Uh, you can go to Amazon, you register your brand, and then they will enforce uh, preventing other people from selling products using your brand, which is really nice. The platform just keeps them off, which uh, saves you the trouble of having to police and monitor and do a lot of that trademark work. Amazon does it for you. And there's the world's largest uh, e-retailer, e-commerce website. Uh, having uh, having them do that for you is, is great. The problem that was happening is we had um, unscrupulous actors who were registering brands they didn't actually own. Uh, yeah. And so Amazon solved that by saying, we're not registering a brand unless you have an actual registered trademark to that brand in the United States. Um, now, Kirk, you probably won't be surprised uh, that uh, what happened is not that people stopped trying to fraudulently acquire <laughs> brand registries. They just started trying to fraudulently acquire U.S. trademark registrations. Yeah. And I think that's the, the real key thing here is it's, you know, it, Amazon did a good thing by basically saying it has to be a registered trademark yeah, agreed. because it, it now says, okay, we know we have to have this recognized. The government basically has to go through and say, this is what it is. There's some real force behind it. Now there's some issue of, you know, what if it's state registered trademark, stuff like that. There can be other ways to clearly protect the trademark that aren't federal registrations, mm -hmm. but you have to put in some criteria of the fact that this has got to be something which can be relatively easily determined. And this can be the, the thing that I think is that you really did bump and problematic with it was and it's not new. You did have people trying to get both registrations and attempts at registration as a blocking position. Yes. And so what you've got now is because Amazon is taking these positions and saying, hey, if you have a federal registration, um, we can give you this additional sort of blocking position in conjunction. You don't need to enforce it in court anymore. It just becomes enforceable in the world's largest online marketplace. What you've now got is people saying, well, I want that protection, even for something that, you know, I may not necessarily be truly entitled to trademark protection for. Um, and so what I think you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of companies now go in and say, well, I, since I need the registration, how do I get the registration through? And in many cases, I think this is legitimate. They're looking at it and saying, Amazon has its criteria of this is what it wants um, in order for it to go through. Well, if I'm entitled to get that, why don't I just get it? Um, and then I have it, even that's not necessarily what I'd want as a trademark to enforce, um, you know, in litigation or anything along those lines, you know, you may get a trademark that's less valuable, um, in order to be able to use it in, in Amazon, stuff like that. But you're also seeing what essentially are potentially purely fraudulent litigations. Now, my understanding of where this came from, and they've actually just cracked down at the trademark office. We may have mentioned this on the program previously with regards to specimens of use of the trademark having what a specimen has to be. What they particularly crack down on is that you have to state when web pages now uh, were printed or when pictures were taken mm -hmm. from web pages, you can't just submit them generally. Um, and you cannot submit digital mockups. You have to submit an actual product photo. You cannot submit a digital mockup of a photo. And my understanding where the latter one came from was there was a trademark examiner and I believe it was for clothes. Um, 
and they caught the fact that they had received the identical specimen, but for the mark which appeared in the specimen. You see this a lot with cases. these with these cafe press type businesses where they, they don't, yeah. it's, it's products on demand, right? They don't actually have the product in inventory. They just have a model with a black shirt and an image of whatever you're making. So the product doesn't actually exist, although it is being offered for sale. But what they're showing you is just, you know, a, a perspective view of what the product will look like once it's, once it's made. Uh, this, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, a legitimate manufacturing sales and business model. Uh, but the trademark office doesn't like that because it means that you haven't actually sold one yet. You're just giving me a picture of what the product might look like once, it's, once it is sold. And the standard and for getting a registration is you have to have an actual sale. What well, do you we have to have it physically on sale. You do have to just have it offered for sale. But I think the concern is it's very difficult for them to distinguish what's an offer for sale versus I just made a digital mock-up and sent it to you. Um, and I think that's what they were seeing is they were yes. seeing these guys who'd made done the cafe press type thing and said, Hey, look, I can make all these shirts. Um, but I never actually have to offer them for sale. I can just make them and submit them in and say they're offered for sale. Cause the patent office has no way to verify it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why they pounced on the, the mock-ups. And again, it has created some problems in certain industries because products, you know, on the internet now are sold via digital mock-ups. You may yeah. sell the product based upon an on-demand manufacturing, not upon an actual product, but, I think most legitimate products that end up on sale, you probably have a real one. You know, it's rare that you have zero yeah. inventory or you have nothing that's ever been made. You think you know, you'd at least get it. one, you know, test run done to make sure it's sized right and looks okay and you can launder it and stuff like that. Why don't we do yeah. actually uh, like uh, a 90 second overview of how the trademarking process works? Because this is an area that I, I don't know about you. I find most people have a sort of intuitive grasp of copyrights, or at least they think they do. They often don't really. Uh, people generally find patents uh, bewildering and mystifying, but I think people sometimes believe they understand trademarks far better than they actually do. So at a, at a high level, you know, our, our federal trademark system is not actually where your trademark rights come from. Uh, they're all acquired at what we call common law through use. All the trademark rights are about using uh, what we call an indicia or, or an indication of origin or source in connection with goods or services, right? So Kirk, you and I go out and we start uh, a hobby store to sell um, you know, board games and RPG stuff. And we call it, you know, Kirk and Ben's hobby store. Okay. Once we put the sign out and we open up for business, we've got trademark rights of some kind, probably. Right. Yeah. You attach common law rights to the fact that you're actually now using the mark in commerce yep. associated with some goods and services. So in that case, our goods and services, and you have to specify what the goods and services are. We retail store or retail services because yep. we're a retail store. Um, Games and, and hobbies, maybe yep. limited to that. Yeah, well, we have to sell our own. Yeah, we have to be, we have to be limited to games and hobbies. We wouldn't necessarily get it in games and hobbies unless we sell games and hobbies branded underneath our own brand, uh, underneath our own name. So if we made RPG stuff, for example, and yeah. sold it in our store, then we'd we'd have a, a yeah. right for games. So and if we were registering, we'd register retail services in the nature of uh, game and hobby products, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and our, our substantive rights, in this case, we're in Missouri, we'd open a store in Missouri, so it would be under Missouri state law, um, Missouri state trademark law for uh, what our substantive rights are. Now, for all practical purposes, nobody cares about any of that, right? Because what, <laughs> well, what happens is- care about it. I mean, you do care about it because of the fact that that's a common law trademark and in many respects, that's all you get. Yeah. And, and, then, and if you had to enforce it, that's what you're enforcing. Um, but 
you know, trademarks are also geographically limited. So if we open a store in Clayton, Missouri, we have rights, at least in Clayton, Missouri, maybe the broader St. Louis area, depending upon where we have actual sales activity, customers, marketing, things like that. And we can maybe creep over into Illinois a little bit, but we're probably going to be confined to St. Louis for our common law trademark rights. Yep. One thing to keep in mind, by the way, anybody, if you ever see the superscript TM, uh, people are used to seeing that, that's an indication of common law trademark rights or an assertion yep. of common law trademark rights. Um, anybody can use that. It's, it's one of those things where you can just simply say that I have believe I have assertion of common law trademark rights. That's what that little TM means. Um, and again, certain things are that way. The one example I always use when I give big presentations in conjunction with trademarks is if you want to see these kind of things, go grab a box of cereal. Um, because cereal does a really great job of having a number of registered trademarks and a number of common law trademarks at the same time on it. And you'll see a lot of TMs, a lot of times on catchphrases, um, maybe sort of newer logos, things like that. Things that have not bothered, they've not bothered registering yet, but they're claiming common law trademark rights in. So again, you see that's TM, that's a common law trademark. You can infringe a common law trademark. You can be found liable for infringement. You can pay monetary damages for infringing a common law trademark. It just means it's not registered. It's not actually been a physically registered trademark. That's the only difference. And the registration system serves a couple of purposes. One is notice. It tells the world that I have this trademark. I claim these rights and here are the goods and services I claim them to. Uh, the federal registration system also gets you nationwide priority. So although, so let's say we open our business today and then we file a registration, we get it at the, we file it today and we get the registration um, next year. And now we want to go over into Kansas city. And it turns out that two other yahoos named Ben and Kirk already have a game and hobby store in Kansas city. If they opened after we filed our registration, our effective date is post-dated to when we filed it. And so we could kick them out of there and make them change their name, but potentially, Potentially. But if they were there before us, before our registration, then they've got rights, at least in their little area where they are, just like we would. Yeah, one of the big issues you bump into is where you can enforce or even a registered trademark. When we say it gives you priority, it gives you the priority to registration. Nobody else could register the mark and get federal rights in conjunction with it. But other Whether people can, could still use it in places where you're not doing business yet. Yeah, and that's the thing is it's the, when people can use it and where you can get infringement is a slightly different thing. And so it's important to keep in mind that sort of federal preemption for registration, if you're the first registered mark, you tend to have preemption rights to basically say nobody else can register it, which means it's very hard for them to stop you from doing business because you, they can't get that kind of federal registration. They can't necessarily stop you, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can stop them. And this is, we're getting into esoteric area of trademark law. Yeah. We don't necessarily need to get into right now. There's a whole bunch of, uh, of, of sort of specific legal We could, we could go on for hours there. about just this. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, one of the big things associated with it, what you hear is people referring to the Don Donut um, case and the, the Don Donut um, sort of area of cases, which all has to do with what this is. We're not going to get into it. There are like massive CLEs on nothing but the Don yep. Donut case. Um, but yeah, so that's basically what you're looking at is, you know, when you talk about federal registration, it really says at that point in time, I've got the mark. I've got the federal rights to the mark. Nobody else is entitled to federal rights in the mark. And the reason this matters for purposes of the Trademark Modernization Act is that it's this process of getting the federal registration that's being modified. Part of that process is that you have to submit to the government sworn statements accompanied by proof that you're actually using the trademark and that you're actually using it as a trademark and that you're actually using it as a trademark with the goods and services that you seek protection for, or at least at least a, a representative sample of them. Uh, and you know, people have historically done this by just sort of checking some boxes and, and firing off some some blurry scans of some you know <laughs> box covers, or taking a, 
a photo. Uh, <clears throat> the trademark office has historically not been overly scrutinizing about those, but due to the amount of fraud that has begun to change and uh, they've begun to look at those a lot more closely. And they also have the authority, what we call sua sponte, which just means on their own initiative, to look at registrations and audit them and to cancel them if they think that your proof is not good enough or you're not actually using the marks. Uh, and the Trademark Modernization Act adds a new wrinkle here. Now third parties, and this was not previously the case, but third parties can also submit evidence to the trademark office during the examination phase uh, to tell them why they should uh, refuse registration on grounds that the claims of use are, are inaccurate or fraudulent or, or wrong. Basically, that the person's claiming to use it, but they're really not. A good way to look at this, and an important thing to keep in mind when you get a federal registration for a trademark, <laughs> the register of the trademark not only is the mark, you have to add what the specific mark is, but you have to specify what goods and services the mark is used on. Uh, in a lot of foreign countries, you get things by class. There's a classification system where certain goods and services fall. Uh, it's esoteric. It was created in like the 1940s, and it's one of those yeah, things where old it and shows. Um, but it's one of those where you still have to specify what the goods and services are. So the example would be returning to sort of, you know, Ben's and, and, and my game and hobby store. If we were to go in and say, we want retail services and they said, well, you have to specify the retail services you want. Let's say we said we sell board games, we sell video games, um, and we sell snacks. Um, as well, because we happen to also be, you know, have a snack bar inside the store, um, which is a different class from retail mm -hmm. stores and goods. So we say we have a snack. We also sell snacks and drinks. Um, so we have two classes for purposes of our registration. Our first one specifies a retail store service selling these two different kinds of things. And then our second service specifies snacks. We are then required to submit what they call a statement of use, um, which is required to have an example of use or a specimen, um, which shows it in use. Commonly in like a retail store, what you would submit is you would submit like a photograph of the outdoors of the store. So you would show like, here's the, the sign showing the store as to what it is. Here's the sign on the door. You may be able to submit something like, you know, here is a, a flyer for it. You can't submit traditional advertising for the most part. Uh, and you can't submit things like firm letterhead or business cards. Um, but you know, you can, like I said, so it was a photograph of the store. So let's say we send in the photograph of the store, um, with a specimen of use. Typically we could say, here it is. It shows all of this. Now we may submit the exact same photograph for both classes because you can't really see what's going on inside the store in conjunction with this. That would be totally acceptable and they may grant it. But the issue with it is, is that we may not actually have the snack bar. We may have filed on this and the snack bar isn't actually there. It's not open. We, we wanted to have one. We were planning to, but we're having supply issues or we just can't fin afford to finish putting it together yet. There could be any number of reasons. It may be that we never intended to and we're just lying, but more, more often uh, just business plans change between when you file, when you actually get the registration. Yeah. No, what you're supposed to do is simply drop the second goods and services and say, hey, we didn't get this. We're not going to do it. Where the concern lies is if you look at it and say, but we're going to do it. Yeah. Well, we sort of done it. We still it. intend to. You know, something like that. We don't want to hold up the registration. So let's just submit it. And by the time it'll be verified, we will actually have a snack bar or we sort of have a snack bar. You know, hey, we sell candy bars, you know, something like that, even though it's not yeah. really a snack There's bar. There's a vending machine. <laughs> It's a vending machine. That's a good example as to what it would be. So you have these kind of filings or we even when we do file it, we do have both things open. The concern that you get you know, with it is stuff changes. And again, what you're supposed to do at the trademark office is you're supposed to tell them when something changes. So we go in and say, hey, look, when we go into, you know, um, you know, our statement of use, we're not going to state we're using it in both classes. We're only using it in one class, drop the other one because we don't have the snack bar open or we get it registered for both. But then we cease using the snack bar when it comes up to a renewal period and trademarks have to be renewed every 10 years. 
plus at five years. So you have to renew that five, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. So it's five, 10, and every 10 thereafter. When we hit one of those renewal periods, you're supposed to come in and say, hey, here's the, you know, the, the new specimen, here's the example. Um, and we assert that we are still using it on all the goods and services in conjunction with it. In addition, the other thing you bump into is like that description of goods and services. So we said we have retail store services selling board games and video games as an example. If we now only sold board games and got rid of the video games, we'd also need to drop video games from that description. These are the things you're supposed to do uh, in conjunction with it. The key about it is you do this when you file and when you get the mark at the beginning, you do it at five years, you do it at 10 years, and you do it every 10 years thereafter. Mm -hmm. So if I have the snack bar open at my 10th year and I close it the 11th year, Technically, you should go registered. back and, and drop it from the registration. But the mark stays registered. It stays registered in the meantime years. until you do that, right? So you do that. <laughs> and uh, um, how many trademark owners do you think are, are really good and diligent about contacting their lawyers and saying, hey, drop this description from our trademark we haven't thought about? Yeah. And part of it's they don't even think about the fact that, you know, hey, they may have it or they don't think about the fact that it's a separate class or it's a separate description. Part of it's because these descriptions are not uniform. So the example is like, we may have the statement in ours that says retail services specifically for board games and video games. Another mark may have retail store services selling games, which means that if you mm -hmm. only sell board games, you have to drop video games from the first one, but the second one's still accurate. Well, uh, the reason these changes are so important also is because you'll, you'll often have, you know, when you're prosecuting a trademark, you may get a rejection based on a prior registration where they say, well, you can't have that trademark because here's somebody else using a confusingly similar trademark on uh, goods and services that aren't completely identical, but they're close enough. And yep. you go look and it's a situation like this where there's a, a Ben and Kirk's uh, pizzeria down the street. And we're saying, well, they're selling pizza. They're not selling snacks. That's different. And besides, I know that place. Uh, they've been out of business, you know, for the last three years. And this registration still just sitting there because uh, yep. it hasn't been canceled yet. And it won't be canceled until their 10-year renewal comes up and they don't file anything. And sometimes it takes the trademark office years to notice and actually abandon the case. Yeah. So it, it's nice to be able to start a proceeding to have that canceled early so you can get your own registration. Uh, and now third parties can even do that. If, if somebody else submits, uh, starts a proceeding, now a third party who is not part of the proceeding at all uh, can jump in and also submit evidence that they have. Yeah. And there was previously what, what Ben hinted at what's called a cancellation proceeding, which was if the, the company's out of business, you can say, Hey, it's, it's canceled. I want their mark canceled. And if they don't defend that suit, it would be canceled, but those can be expensive and difficult procedures. And in some cases, it's not that they're out of business. It's that they're literally, their mark covers more than what they do now. So again, you look at, you say, Hey, the pizzeria down the street also said it was a snack bar, but they don't have a snack bar anymore. They're just yeah. a pizzeria. Or it's a bowling alley that had a snack bar, you know, and yeah. the snack bar is gone now. And so we want that that piece removed from it. And that's kind of what this is, is saying now is that you have the ability to go in and say, hey, look, we're going to challenge the use in this subclass in this particular area. And the real reason you're going to usually be doing this is because you're trying to get a registration to that particular area. And this is good because it means that it, what you bump into when you, you start doing when you do any kind of trademark practice, you bump into issues where somebody happened to get a broader description through than somebody else did. And so suddenly you have the issue where, you know, party A has a description which says, you know, restaurant services um, and party B has specifically, you know, pizza parlor and snack bar. Mm -hmm. And now you can't get snack bar in light of the one who has snack bar, even though the pizza parlor was fine in light of restaurant services. Yeah. That um, happens all the time. You know, and so you, you look at it, you say, Hey, I want to, you know, get that snack bar kicked out of there. Cause really it's a pizza parlor um, and those kind of things. And it allows you to sort of do this thing a little bit more piecemeal. So I think that's the real takeaway from this 
what you should look at from this, this is esoteric. And, and we said, you know, it's the very specific elements in conjunction with trademark practice, but it allows you to basically boot little bits of the description out of things where you also bump into problems with this. And, and Ben hinted at it earlier, the trademark office also now has the ability to do this. They're doing what are called audits. And so basically you can have a scenario where you, you only require to submit a statement of use showing the specimen in one class. So again, if you look at it um, or of one of the goods and services. So again, if you looked at it and said, um, you know, we have a, uh, you know, our retail store services selling board games and video games. And what we sent was a picture of, you know, a land setup that's obviously video games, but is not, you know, uh, the board game piece of it, but they're never going to say that's a problem. What they can, trademark office can do is they can come back now and they can say, well, actually we think that might be a problem because from what we've seen, you don't actually have a board game sales division. So we're going to audit you. Um, and an audit, you're required to defend that you actually use it on all the goods and services that are underneath this or drop them. Now, it's, it, it sounds kind of like, you know, audit is kind of this evil, you know, like you did something wrong type of thing. I wouldn't say there's necessarily any statement of wrongness by being audited or by even losing an auditor by backing down. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is to just clean up the registrar. We've, we've had a few audits recently. And you can challenge them. We've challenged them in one um, to say, no, we actually are using it on all these things. Let us show, point out why um, and, and argue with the trademark office. You know, you could also lose them. You can also get something where the, the trademark office says, no, we don't think you're using it on that. You have to drop that particular, you know, description from it. But again, I think what we're really looking at here is the ability to clean up the register and to really yeah. say when there's when there's things that this is not really being used on, you know, goods and services is not really being used on, not only can the trademark office do it because the trademark office doesn't necessarily have the real inclination to, to do this, but third parties can do it that where it's important to them and don't have to go through a cancellation proceeding, don't have to get, uh, get a third party agreement. You can just go after it and say, hey, look, I think there's a problem because I don't think it's actually used on this component. Let's move on to the Case Act, uh, which is probably the more controversial and uh, and widely misreported <laughs> part of this bill. Uh, so the Case Act is the copyright alternative uh, in small claims enforcement. It's one of these awful congressional acronyms they like to come up with. Uh, it uh, creates a, a, a basically a arbitration slash mediation sort of judicial tribunal to resolve copyright infringement claims without having to go to federal court. Uh, so copyright is, you know, in the Constitution, the federal courts have exclusive jurisdiction over it. Uh, now, with respect to almost everything, there's a couple of small areas that still fall to the states. But for the most part, almost all of copyright has been preempted to the federal government. Um, for all practical purposes, it's, it's anything anybody would be fighting about these days. Um, you know, normally when you go to federal court, you have to prepare a federal petition. You've got to file it. You've got to serve it. Um, you know, just the process of drafting a proper petition, uh, if, you know, if, unless you're, unless you're going to do it yourself, hiring an attorney is going to cost you a, a decent amount of money. Um, I would guess most law, law firms who are competent in doing IP litigation, I would think high four figures, low five for a, a basic, you know, simple copyright infringement case. Uh, also online, you know, you often don't know who the defendant is. Uh, someone's posting something and you don't know who it is. You've got to file a John Doe lawsuit. You've got to file a motion with the judge to seek preliminary discovery. You've got to draft a subpoena and a request for records. You've got to send it to the ISP or whoever's you know hosting the content. You've got to then work with them to get the information back to find the IP address. Then you got to send another subpoena to the ISP to find out who the subscriber is. I mean, just the process of figuring out who you're supposed to be suing uh, could could cost you know uh, ten twenty thirty thousand dollars no guarantee of success it might take you three to six months so 
that's um, you know that's a problem uh, for, for people who own content. And the Case Act is meant to simplify things and make it easier, uh, so that you don't have to prepare the big long petition. Um, if you're because the, I guess the idea is you know let's you know let's be clear. I, IP laws are are mostly commercial laws. They are intended to mediate disputes over intellectual property between. Uh, commercial enterprises, business to business laws. The problem is we live in an era where um, the technology is affordable and readily available for consumer-based copyright infringement. And we've been struggling since this happened, you know, 20, 25 years ago to kind of get caught up. We used to be able to rely upon the cost of physical media or energy barriers to sort of put a, a natural check or limit on how much consumer infringement went on. We slapped copying levies on the media so we could recover some of the lost, uh, you know, revenue from infringing activities. But none of that works very well with computers and the internet. Energy barriers effectively zero, and the media is vanishingly cheap. So, uh, you know, the DMCA fills part of that role, and now the Case Act is supposed to help with that. With that too. Um, so the way it works is, if somebody thinks you're infringing their copyrights, they they send you. You got to be served just like you would in federal court. So you still got to go through that hassle. Um, and then once you're served, it's it's voluntary. So if you look at it and you say, I don't want to be a part of this arbitration thing, I want my day in court in front of a real federal judge, then you just opt out and say, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, and then you're done. And, and that's it. Um, if you don't opt out, then the proceeding goes forward, but the remedies available are limited. And the amount of damages that can be collected is capped at $30,000 per matter. So, you know, if you've got a big copyright claim, obviously this is no good for you. But you, if you have a big claim, you're not thinking about this anyway. If, if it's that big, it's worth the cost to go to federal court. Um, this has been widely um, applauded by content owners, especially uh, individual artists, um, independent artists, small businesses who produce copyrighted works. Um, you know, they've, they've struggled for a long time to have some affordable avenue to enforce their rights and combat privacy. But um, there's been a, a pretty vocal chorus of critics, uh, I think the EFF is among them, who think that this law is going to be weaponized by copyright trolls who are going to try to uh, force settlements out of people for engaging in everyday internet um, conduct. And the common example is you post a meme or an animated GIF and whammo, $30,000. Uh, Kirk, how concerned are you about uh, NBC trolling people over Michael Scott gifts on Twitter? I'm not really concerned about it. And it's, I think the thing with it is, and I think I understand where the concern comes from. And I, I, but I tend to side with the people that are, that are for this way. I look at this. I think this is something which is going to be used by small content creators against small content creators. I, I agree. You know, this is something where what we're looking at, you know, large content creators, you're talking an NBC and HBO, you know, a Netflix, those guys are going to use federal court. They're not going to yeah. use this unless they have some scenario where it's something that's particularly small, um, and they, 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 they bring it this way just because it's so small, they can't justify it. Whereas they previously wouldn't have brought it at all. So that's like the one place I could see, you know, potentially being used, but they're primarily going to be worried about large scale infringements. They're not really, really worried about small scale infringements. 
the advantage I see of using this and sort of the reason I side with the fact that I think this is a good thing. There's a lot of cases where small scale content creators get inadvertently infringed by other small scale infringed by other small scale creators. You know, this is something where there's no, you know, nefarious planning here. It's just people not understanding the copyright law. These are relatively low dollar things. They may be only a few thousand dollars. Now there is profit on both sides of them. So it's not mm -hmm. something like somebody's coming in and saying, Hey, whammo, you owe me $30,000 for something that was worthless to you. It's usually going to be, I think, something where it's, hey, we're both producing this same small market good. This small market good is being sold in the same commerce. We've each sold a couple thousand dollars worth of these things. Yep. But one of us did create it. One of us is entitled to royalties from the other. And you know they're upset about it. This is a way they potentially can bring this now. Whereas previously, there was just no way for them to have, be able to afford the court. Yep. So it, it it kind of gives that ability to sort of resolve these kind of disputes in this relatively small, again, $30,000 is virtually nothing when it comes to a copyright suit. I mean, yep. you could readily burn through $30,000 to get a copyright suit just to court. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's one discovery dispute. Yeah. <laughs> not you even. Know? <laughs> and so it's the kind of thing where, you know, it, again, if you've really got money behind this, it's not going to be used, but I can really see this being small content creator versus small content creator. When somebody just feels like they got ripped off, this is going to be a way for them to sort it out instead of what's been the problem now, where it's the, unless you have the, you know, unless you weren't going to spend $10,000 to win five, you, you can't get any sort of justification that you're right or you are the content creator here. So again, that's my take of what it is. Can it be weaponized? Yes, anything. Of course, can be it could. Weaponized. But so can a federal lawsuit. That's the part I don't understand. Is you still have to serve somebody, which mm -hmm. means you still have to figure out who you need to serve. So I'm on Twitter anonymously posting my Michael Scott memes, and NBC decides they want to troll me for settlement dollars. First of all, shame on them for not realizing that shaking down people on Twitter is a terrible use of their time. <laughs> but, but, you know, setting that aside, they got to find me first. They got to figure out who I am. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, offhand, I don't know how they'd go about doing that if they'd have to still go through the uh, the federal subpoena process. Um, but they've, they've got to find me before they can get, they got to serve me, right? I can't be pulled into this until I've been served. But once I've been served with notice of this, I mean, the, the effect on the weaponization is really no different than uh, a federal lawsuit that they would file, right? It's a little cheaper for them, but they, finding me is still the hard part. So, you know, it's no different than a small claims lawsuit or a collection action or anything else. You have to serve the person. Due process does not die with the case act. And if I ignore the, 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 the lawsuit at my peril, yeah, I get sucked into this thing. But if you ignore a federal lawsuit, then they move for default judgment, you lose. And then they file the judgment with the, with the county sheriff and they come take your car. Like it's, it's really no different. So yep. I just, I, I think it's really overblown fear mongering. Um, by the, you know, the EFF in particular, I, I pick on them because I both love and despise them at the same time. <laughs> About half the time I'm like, yes, thank God these guys are here. And half the time I'm like, you guys are just ridiculous. But, um, well the one thing I put with the fear of weaponization, I do see two ways it potentially can be weaponized. One of which is, and, and I fear the weaponization of people thinking they can weaponize it because they don't know better. Yeah. Um, and so the example being a small content creator who says, Hey, I created X which it may be a very narrow thing under the copyright law, but now saying I'm going to go after anybody who created X prime through, you know, quadruple prime where that really wouldn't be copyright infringement. If it was, if it goes to a finding, it wouldn't be found to be copyright infringement uh, because of the fact that it's sufficiently different, but they look at it and say, I can bring these kind of suits. I can force the people into default judgments, you know, win money from it underneath this case act, or, you know, just get, 
some le- level of damages to try to be a chilling effect recognizing that they may not really have a copyright infringement, but under the case act, it may be found to be one just because of the simplification of the procedure. So I can see it from that respect that that is a concern. Mm -hmm. But again, I think that's just the people who are administering the case act are going to need to pay attention to it. The other question and one we were just looking up is if there's any availability of injunction underneath the case act, we just can't find the answer right away. I don't know. There's no express mention that the, that the board has the authority to issue injunctions, but I do think they have the ability to just kind of tell, it's not like an official injunction, like a judge would issue, but I think they can issue as part of the remedy, uh, knock it off. Um, And if you don't do that, then you've breached the, you know, the, the ruling, and then you could go to a federal court maybe and get an injunction to enforce the ruling. And that's where I see the potential worry is then putting that in, in a default type of scenario or something along those lines, then putting that in, in a default scenario. And then the person going and enforcing the default scenario at the federal court saying, I'm entitled to an injunction. You're in violation of the default judgment of the case act. Now that, that takes a lot of, of effort to do, but I could see that being one yeah. form of weaponization from this. Again, I don't see big companies doing that it they can get it much more effectively by just going and getting the default judgment at the federal yeah, court exactly yeah I, I think i think this is going to do the most good for for small and individual content creators whose works are being taken either by competitors or by large content creators who are either uh you know cynically or just ignorantly relying on the, the true owner not really doing anything about it and we've we've got some experience with that professionally we've dealt with clients who've had their stuff taken by uh, you know large competitors and 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 used in an inappropriate way you know we you know we don't go file lawsuits we just go send them a letter and say hey you know don't, don't be a jerk this isn't fair and, and things yeah. get settled but uh, this this may give a little more teeth I, I'm skeptical this is gonna really make a big dent but I think it will help uh, in, in that in that band of situations it's it's I don't think it's gonna make a dent in pirate though. Not a big one. Yeah. I think the real value of this in many respects is going to be, and it may sound kind of strange. It's, it's almost in the, the people who see this as they, they're not so much worried about the money. They're not so much worried about the injunction. They see it essentially as something immoral against them mm-hmm. and they want the reconciliation. They want the statement that, yes, this person did take something from me. It's really mine, that kind of thing with it. This can get them that, which right now there's just no good way to do it. And when you can look at it and say that's, that's a meaningless thing, it's not. Not you know, to the artist. talking about things people created. These are artists. You know? And so the ability to say, you know, yes, I wrote that song you know, and, and you took it from me, even though you put it on the album and nobody bought your album because, you know, you're a terrible singer. <laughs> I still want to have the idea that says, you know, you did take it from me and I'm entitled to that assertion by a judicial entity that it's mine. And if somebody does buy your album in the future, they have to pay me. Yep. Um, and, and again, I think you, you're going to have some of that sort of coming down there is that, again, I look at it almost as being a moral type of thing. Um, is the real value of this. And again, dealing with the small content creator, small content creator, particularly in an inadvertent infringement scenario where there are there is money involved, but it's not huge amounts of money. So it's just trying to bring a copyright suit would be pointless, but there should be a compensation across here that it, you know now it's forced as opposed to requiring the parties to settle it on their own. So are we are we worried at all about this type of thing being used to shut down fan fiction sites and stuff like that? It may be used, but quite frankly, there's plenty of other weapons that they can already use to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, a DMCA yeah. takedown would cover it. I mean, that, and that costs way less. 
Yeah. And, you know, if they're, you know, if somebody's really going to go after you, they're going to come after you with a cease and desist letter. They're going to come after you with a federal lawsuit. Why would they use the small claims to say this is what it is? They come after the federal lawsuit. They may come after you with a small claim. Quite frankly, if you get a DMC, if you're a fan fiction and they come after you in conjunction with the small claims, this may be a place where you can literally defend yourself. Yeah. Because it's now affordable. And you can go after and make a fair use defense, which you wouldn't be able to. And, and you know, that would be good. <laughs> I, I, well, as a particularly, say, that's a good thing. The way that we measure damages in copyright cases, you know, th- they're still beholden to the rules for damages. And damages are either disgorgement of profits. So if you haven't made any money, there's no damages there. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, you know, the, the damages, you actual damages, how much money have you cost um, the, the person who... Um, owns the copyright again and nebulous and difficult. I mean, what, what is fan fiction costing anybody? You know, nothing. Yeah. Uh, and then statutory damages, which you've got to have a registration for. And you know, th- that's a little more nebulous because you're sort of in a range of values, but I would be shocked if like a fan fiction site got dinged with a, you know, even, even a couple thousand dollars in statutory damages for original fan fiction set in like a universe or something like that. So there's still some practical limitations on this. And the bottom line is before anybody comes and goes to the trouble of doing all of this, you're going to get a letter that says, Hey, we don't approve of this. Will you stop? Yeah. Uh, and, and if again, you choose not to, then they got to serve you. So there's, there's going to be multiple opportunities for notice and avoiding this entirely. And again, a lot of times the threat of the letter is the statutory damages, the large damage verdict. You know, this is capped at $30,000, regardless of what the, st- the, the thing is. You know, it's capped at $30,000. And I don't believe they can assert more than $30,000. So if they're going to assert statutory damages- And it's 15 per thing. work. So it's 30 if there's multiple works. Yeah. So, you know, what we're looking at in conjunction with this thing is the idea of somebody coming, you know, yes, $15,000 is a lot of money. But if you look at it and you say, hey, you know, you're a small fan fiction creator, you're getting forced into this damages are capped at $15,000 and you now have an opportunity to defend yourself in this proceeding versus you're going to federal court. Defending yourself is more expensive. Damages are uncapped and you're looking at $150,000 per infringement, you know, 10 times the scale of damages. And so that's the kind of thing where I look at this and say, again, if what you're looking at is threat value, this has very little threat value compared to the threat value of something else. Again, I look at it and say, if a, you know, if a company out there says, you know, I have a legitimate dispute with fan fiction, it falls underneath this case act. I don't think it's that much money, but you know, I I do think I'm entitled to be paid as to what this is. My take is, is you're for the small content creator. This is good for you because now you can go in front of this case act. You might be able to say, Hey, you know, it works out that you owe them this much to continue to produce your fan fiction mm-hmm. uh, and everybody's happy. And that's, you know, at that point in time, this is a good thing. <laughs> and, and if you can assert a fair use defense, I think that adds enough uncertainty. I mean, I, I'm just thinking through this. I would not want to wade into an arbitration proceeding like this and then start arguing about something that is as fact specific and unpredictable as fair use. Yeah. And potentially have a binding order from this this court that could be enforced by a federal court without the ability to go back and review the facts and say they got it wrong. I mean, that's the Google v. Oracle case that's been to the Supreme Court three times and been reversed. Imagine if by law, once this arbitration panel says it's fair use, there is no review. Yeah. I, I think I think most people who own content don't want to run the risk of that, of having this, you know. Now, none of these these are not precedential. So, you know, two different you know, you know, panels can find two different ways, but I, I think there's a, you know, there's enough here, right. That, that I, I'm just not too concerned about 
the 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 weaponization aspect. You know, we could we could be wrong. I guess we'll find out over the next the next couple of years here. So yeah, maybe exactly. we revisit this for season five and see what's happened. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So the the last piece uh, we're going to talk about is there's some new language that criminalizes the operation of websites that are quote unquote primarily engaged in streaming pirated or unlicensed copyrighted works. Um, you know, we already have criminal copyright infringement. I have not read this provision yet. I've heard a lot of people sort of, uh, uh, a lot of pearl clutching and hand wringing over it. And I, I'm not sure if that's justified or not. I just haven't had a chance to go through the language. I just think we already have criminal copyright infringement. It's mainly a hook crime. You know, if we've, if we've got some sort of organized crime or other, you know, larger crime, then we throw in the copyright piece if we have to, so we can get federal jurisdiction and get them in front of the U.S. attorneys and in federal court. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what to think about this one. I, I generally don't like the idea of criminal IP laws. Um, but, um, you know, if you're, I guess I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are deliberately running websites to stream pirated software. Like, well, you know what you're doing is wrong. So I, I guess I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah, I kind of look at this and I think the the general, you know, statements and I think what everybody agrees in conjunction with this thing is going to be, this is going to be rarely used. Um, but it's one of those things where, I have, I don't have, you know, because there is criminal copyright infringement, I mean, and I'll tell you, I have a problem with criminal copyright infringement at all, but since there is criminal copyright infringement, I'm not sure this changes much. The reason I really see this thing existing is it's a way for the justice department to go after the people who run a webpage that's associated with criminal copyright infringement, as opposed to them trying to get at, at who is actually performing it, thinking of an old master style yeah. you know, type of concern here that that's really what we're looking at is somebody who's found a way to technically dodge the criminal cha the criminal challenges from this. Mm -hmm. This is a way to catch them. I like your sort of your comment, Ben, is this is kind of the organized crime type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Hey, the mob boss doesn't know anybody was murdered. Um, you know, didn't encourage anybody to be murdered, didn't actually commit any murders. We need something to catch them because they're the ones who yeah. really are doing everything. So you go to mail fraud, computer fraud, criminal streaming, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I wonder exactly. if this could be paired up with Rico to do something there. I don't know enough about Rico to see how this would interact with that. If this would constitute the type of felony you could use for, for Rico charges, but maybe, maybe that's part of what it is. Um, so I'll, we'll, we'll have to look into this one a little more detail. It's, it's, it's interesting and kind of peculiar since we already have, I mean, streaming unlicensed or pirated copyrighted works is already copyright infringement. And there's already such a thing as criminal copyright infringement. So I'm not a hundred percent sure why this specific um, type of infringement needed to be called out through separate legislation. So I kind of want to dig into the background on that because it just seems like an odd thing to, to single out. My thing with it is, again, I think what it is, is the person who technically dodges criminal copyright infringement, but is running a website which commits criminal copyright infringement is what yeah. they're looking at here, trying to get at the owner. And again, I take an old school, you know, original Napster type of argument, you know, where it was the issue was, is did Napster actually do anything wrong because everything was being performed by its users without their knowledge? Um, you know, but did they really know what the system was being used for? I think that's what they're trying they, to target they, here. They <laughs> yeah, I think, well, and again, I think that's what they're trying to target here is say, you know, hey, if, you know, you knew this, you can be subject to the same criminal infringement as to what it is. So just plain don't do that. You know, don't yeah. do something you know to be a criminal activity just because technically you can dodge it being a criminal activity. Um, and so, again, I think that's what this is really looking at. 
I have problems with criminal copyright infringement at all. Yeah, me too. Um, but you know, to the extent that we're looking at this, I don't think it's that big of an extension. Okay, so there's your your three main provisions. We've got the Trademark Modernization Act, the Case Act, and uh, the criminalization of uh, pirated uh, copyrighted works. All in the Stimulus uh, Act for COVID nineteen relief. Naturally, this will all help us get uh, uh, cleared of COVID uh, sooner. So, uh, <laughs> way, way to go, Congress. Um, but uh, so there, there you go. This has been signed into law. It's uh, it's done. So um, we'll keep an eye on how these things develop over the year. Maybe we'll revisit this uh, this time in 2021. Uh, closing out here, we'll do a couple minutes. On Kirk, Kirk has finally seen Mandalorian season two. <laughs> so I, I binge watched the entirety of season two. Uh, my my, my um, family ended up being uh, at my in-laws for part of the uh, New Year's holiday. And so I had the house to myself. So I ended up, um, cause I've been watching Mandalorian with our, with my kids. We should say here. spoiler alert. We're going to get into some spoilers. So if you we're haven't seen Mandalorian season two yet, uh, <laughs> turn this off now because we're, we're not going to be holding back. Yeah. So I've been watching it with my kids. They actually really like Mandalorian and they're in the process of watching. We are just about to start the last episode of season one. Um, and so I didn't, you know, want to, it's not something I could watch when they were around. So I purposely watched it for the podcast, just binge watched all the way through it. Um, to see what happened in season two so that we could discuss it. And then I'll watch it with them again. Um, and definitely that's starting with the point having now seen season two, I will most definitely be watching it with them again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my take for it was, is, and I'm going back and watching season one, like I've enjoyed watching season one. It's reminded me how good of a show it was, but it also has pointed out just how good season two is. Um, and in some sense, how much better season two is than season one. Uh, which has kind of stunned me as to what it is. Um, I'm curious what's going to happen in season three. I think that's the the sort of big opening is where is season three going to go? Um, What are we going to see with season three? They've kind of recreated the plot. Uh, I'm I'm also just as an IP attorney, I'm very curious where it's going to go in the marketing. Uh, And again, to sort of get with, you know, for spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't heard it, um, definitely turn off now. We are essentially taking Baby Yoda out of the show, and he is by far the most important marketing aspect of the show. Um, so what does that mean uh, in conjunction with the marketing of the show, in conjunction with the marketing of secondary things? Um, or is that in some sense a red herring, and we're still going to see lots you know, going forward? But I think it's we're going to see much more focus on the Mandalorian. Um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And we got there with a bang. <laughs> uh, yeah. So for those of you, I mean, I assume, I assume if you're still listening, you've seen it. Um, well, I just I'm, told you I'm, the big spoiler. So, yeah, yeah. Have. Uh, so this is the text I got from Kirk. So I just finished Mandalorian season two. O ellipses, M ellipses, G. And so we, we both had the same thought, like, you know, I'm, I'm watching it. So, so Luke shows up, I'm watching it. Um, and they're all cornered in the bridge of the ship. And I'm like, all right, well, how are they going to get out of this? I thought that the two X-Wing pilots from the spider egg episode were going to show up and we'd find out that somebody sent a distress call or something like that, or, or they were tailing them anyway. Uh, Cause they, they kind of developed those characters a little more than I expected them to uh, for characters who are just going to appear and disappear. Um, so I thought maybe they would show up and do something. And then when they, and then I was not at all surprised when the radar beeped and they're like, Oh, ship approaching. I'm like, Oh, okay. So it's those two guys. And then it said it's one X wing. And I'm sure y'all had the same reaction. You're like, Oh no. it's one <laughs> X-wing. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, it could be Luke or more likely it's them teasing us to think it's Luke, but then it's not, it'll be wedge or something like that. Yeah. So the X-Wing lands and they're making a big, big dramatic drawn out display out of it. And I'm like, they really want me to think it's Luke. I'm not taking the bait. There's no way. 
and, and then, you know, the, the pilot gets out and you see the cape and the lightsaber and the hand. And as the scenes unfold, you get more and more indisputable evidence that it's definitely Luke and not anybody else. <laughs> it couldn't be anybody else. Yeah. So my next thought is, okay, so the, so we've we've carefully cut around the face so we don't actually see him. Um, so something's going to happen where like, he just stands by the door. We get a, a over the shoulder camera angle and they hand baby Yoda through the door and we never see his face. Nope. <laughs> he walks right in the door and like, Oh, the hood's down. So they're going to, Nope. We're taking the hood off. Yeah. Well, then he's not going to talk. Nope. <laughs> he's going to talk. Um, it was, and, uh, at, at that point I was, at first I was like, did they find someone to wear like a, a, 30 year old Mark Hamill mask or where did they get that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it became clear that it was CGI. It was pretty well done. I mean, not, once I was looking for it, I could kind of see where it wasn't really CGI or where it was CGI, but um, overall an expertly done scene. And it was what I think all of us as fans wanted to see from Luke in the sequels and never got, which is, you know, we saw Luke become a Jedi at the end of a return of the Jedi but we we never saw him after that at like the full height of his his power and his abilities. Uh, never saw him in sort of the the elder senior role. Uh, we just saw him as the bitter old man who'd given up. And I think that was that was why people hated Episode Eight so much. Not so much that the movie was itself bad, setting aside the Canto Bite sequence, which I still maintain was <laughs> ridiculous and stupid. Um, but that we were we were teased for all of episode seven with the possibility of Luke in that role. And we got a couple little pieces of it, but not really. It was Luke trying to convince Ray why she shouldn't bother being a Jedi, as opposed to Luke really completing the circle and taking on the Yoda role. And we never got to see him, you know, you know, teach Kylo Ren or teach any of those guys. He'd already risen and fallen. And I think that's one of the reasons that the sequels just never really felt complete to us. And so this scene gave us that in one little scene, the same way that Rogue One gave us that Vader scene at the end, which was completely unnecessary to the plot um, and, and, you know, kind of stupid in hindsight, but really satisfying to watch. Like something just in terms of eye candy and visuals and something I've wanted to just see done, uh, that scene with Vader at the height of his power was excellent. And then likewise, uh, Luke, we got a parallel scene here, Luke at the height of his power, uh, just kicking butt and taking names extremely satisfying and Kirk I think when you and I were talking about the Mandalorian we figured they would carefully avoid any run-ins with the original cast because we just weren't sure how they'd do it and it might seem a little you know cheesy and 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 um just not you know really fit with the with the narrower scope but they handled it pretty well I think we've got two and a half minutes of, sc of Luke screen time maybe you know one one butt yeah. kicking scene a little bit of dialogue and then he's gone well, the thing that I had with it and the takes of it was, you know, I had sort of similar reaction is when I heard the one X-Wing, I'm like, where are they going with this? Is this is going to be the Jedi? It was when they actually showed the X-Wing and it kind of looks old. Mm -hmm. I mean, you first see it, I was like, wait, this is Luke's X-Wing, isn't it? And, you know, you see the cowl, he jumps out and he looks just like he does in Jabba's Palace. You see the green lightsaber. You see the gloved hand hang the lightsaber, which is clearly the design of his lightsaber, you know, on his belt, sort of stuff like that. Where I figured it was going to go is, you know, Mark Hamill's a well-established voice actor. Uh, I figured it was going to be, you were going to see the cowl and he was going to speak underneath it. And it would actually be Mark Hamill's voice mm -hmm. uh, because why not? I mean, he's, he's literally yeah. a fantastic voice actor. Why not use him in that role? Um, and, you know, to then see the face. And my first take of it was how on earth did they get somebody to look this much like him? Because it, it does look like Luke, but it's clearly aged, but at the same time, it's not perfect. It's not, you know, exactly mm -hmm. what you necessarily expect Luke to look like and stuff like that. And I remember I was watching the credits and going, 
who's it going to be? Who is the, where'd they find the actor? They're going to have to give the actor's name, even though it's Mark Hamill's voice, they're going to have to give the actor's name. And then it's like, and just Mark Hamill. And I'm like, it must've been CGI. They must've tarkened him um, yeah. you know, <laughs> as to you know, sort of what it was. And I was like, they did that really well. Like yep. it was amazing how well that was done. I thought the scene was really good. The other thing I really liked about it is you do get the butt kicking scene and you get the, the butt kicking scene through a just impossible enemy. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that the dark troopers are just this unstoppable force. You know, the Mandalorian barely stops one of them. Um, you know, they come back from being spaced, you know, they're just an unstoppable force. You have, you know, um, the moth is very into, they're just going to come and wail on you. There's nothing I need to do. I'm just going to sit here because there's nothing I need to do. Um, you know, that kind of thing sort of with it. And then have him just plow through them like a warm knife through butter. Pardon the pun. Mm-hmm. Um, what I also really loved is the very last one when he reaches up and just crushes it with his hand. Mm-hmm. The idea, you know, that, that Luke's got some darkish powers here. You know, this was a force choke to a whole new extreme. Uh, you know, as to what it is. And so I really thought they did a great job of one portrayal of, of Luke. I, again, I really liked the the comment you made with it is it's, we get to see Luke be a true kick by Jedi. It's the same as the comment I made, as I said, my favorite scene in the, in episode one. And the only scene I really thought was great was the, the lightsaber battle pre the, the chamber with Darth Maul, where you see the Jedi just bouncing off of everything. It's massively acrobatic moves. You know, these are people that are beyond the pale of sword fighters mm-hmm. you know, this is this is fantasy sword fighting to a whole new level because of what they can do um and i really wish they would have done more with that i mean darth paul was an acrobat like why yeah. did they you know and a massive gymnast why did they not use his ability to do those kind of things um, as an actor to that extreme you know they did it it was great and then they killed him off and i'm like bring him back he was too cool um <laughs> but yeah that was the real thing i had with it is i thought it was a great presentation of the fact that he is just enormously powerful and what this represents and i think that's going to be something we're going to play off of i mean it looks like they're setting up we're going to have much more of the mandalorian story it's gonna be the mandalorian with other mandalorians the interplay between all these characters that we see on the bridge at the end you know something with you know where's the history of mandalore what's the future of mandalore who's going to be the king of mandalore and mm-hmm. who's mandalore, king or queen um of mandalore you know it's what it is the play off the dark saber what does this kind of stuff mean um, and then we've still got the empire. We've obviously still got the moth who presumably is going to escape at some point in time and yeah. cause problems. Um, the other thing I would say about season two is as much as the ending was satisfying, a lot of the episodes in season two were also really good. Yes. Um, I comment about it is the, the watery planet I think is my favorite Star Wars setting ever. Yeah. Like, it was so out of place, but it worked really well. Yeah, and it's I love the planet. I love the nature of it. And to me, it just felt so Star Wars. It was it was the dirty, grimy future. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, it had comedic elements and sort of stuff like that. But the idea of like this is a seaport. And like one of the things I really loved is like the fact that they have the Adat Walker that's a crane. Yeah. You know, it's just walking around in the harbor picking things out because this happens. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, okay, that's awesome. Like, you know, this is the, the type of thing with it. I love the chowder dispenser. And I was commenting. I'm pretty sure they sell seafood chowder at Galaxy's Edge. I think I even had it. Um, I know I had seafood chowder at Disney. That's why I think that may be where I had it. Um, and they may have even dispensed it from kind of like a dispenser like that. There was, you know, there were things in like that that were kind of like neat in the way they did it. You know, yes, you have the little, you know, octopus jump out and grab hold of baby Yoda's face, which is more just silly. Mm-hmm. But it was also just the general sort of like, I think they did a great job of that being a cool Star Wars location as a, what a water planet should be as opposed to Camino, which is just boring. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> so. Well, I got a call here in a little bit. So I'm, we're going to wrap this up now. Um, we could, we could go on forever about star Wars and in other phone calls we have. So <laughs> yes, exactly. uh, 
So going forward, we're going to try and do with season four, I think what we wanted to do with season three, now that we've got a stable technology set up that works and we think we, the audio quality is good enough. Uh, yeah, we're I'm using gonna, a new microphone on this, so hopefully it sounds good. Yeah, yeah, Kirk, so the signal looks good again. So I think we're okay there. And uh, the internet uh, has been holding up pretty well. I have not had a whole lot of cutouts um, in the editing. So we're going to try and do the, the multi-format episodes, some shorter, some longer, uh, basically what season three was supposed to be, but but wound up being edamame episodes instead. Um, we don't really have the specific plan laid out yet. We're kind of working on that, but we still want to get back to doing a more regular schedule, content every couple of weeks. Um, we're going to try and do every two weeks or, or at least two a month, maybe not on the exact perfect schedule, but two episodes a month. Um, so here's our first for January. We'll try and get one more out in January and, uh, and sort of go from there and and play it by ear. I think we all just have to be flexible until this, uh, this virus um, is, uh, is gone. So um, on that note, uh, check out our website at lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms and give us a review to help new listeners find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. I work, so I worked out this morning and I, I found out that there's something, Mackenzie found this online, but there's some sort of reaction you can get when you exercise intensely uh, that basically is like an allergic reaction and it causes me to like have a runny nose and cough. So what I've learned is I'm literally allergic to exercise. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm not allergic to beer yet. So <laughs> That's good. That, that, that tells you a lot, right? Like <laughs> developed allergies to, to sunlight, outdoors, grass. <laughs> St. Louis is slowly trying to kill me, but now I can still drink all the beer I want.